A lot to do this morning as we uh, plough our way through some of these uh, verses that we find in 1 Kings. The people of God, you remember from last time, have split and uh, after things all settled down, there were ten tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, often referred to just as Judah in uh, the south. The northern kingdom, those ten tribes, would eventually be wiped off the face of the earth as God's judgment comes. But only after 200 years of persistent, willful and stubborn rebellion. Only then would God's judgment actually come. God's grace and patience and mercy would give them 200 years to sort things out. Why? Because we know God's heart. That he is slow, not slow in keeping his promise, but he is slow to anger and he is abounding in love because he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So they get this 200 years grace to sort themselves out. And it's during this time, this period of 200 years, that a number of prophets are sent by God to help the people turn their hearts back towards him. Two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, we'll look at this morning, thinking mostly about Elijah. There were other prophets too that were raised up during this time, Amos and uh, Hosea. You can read their stories in the Bible. Their prophecies are written in the books that bear their name. So when God's judgment eventually comes, it's not without a huge long period of longing and patience on God's heart for the people to turn. So we pick up the story in the middle of this period of time, uh, looking at the life of Elijah, uh, 1 Kings 16, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 29, that's page 358 in the Bible in your pew. Please have it open in, in front of you, page 358, 1 Kings 16, verse 29, and we see that things are in pretty bad shape. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria, where the capital was, over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, verse 30, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it, verse 31, trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He considered it trivial then, verse 31, the sins of Jeroboam. Can you remember Jeroboam from last week when he took charge of the tribes in the north? He decided that it was too risky to let the people go back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God. So he created two rival places of worship, one in the north of his territory, one in the south. And he created two golden calves. And he said of these calves, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Incredible blasphemy turning the hearts of the people away from the living God, and now his successor, Ahab, regards such things as trivial. As if that wasn't enough, he also married a lovely woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was a big cheese in Baal worship. She had 800 prophets of Baal under her command, and so Ahab too, as it says at the end of verse 31, began to serve Baal and worship him. 
Not only that, as we go on through these verses, we see that Ahab got personally involved and he set up, verse 32, an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, uh, sorry, uh, for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. All this probably under the influence of his wife, Jezebel, who was pathologically driven to drive out all of God's prophets from the land, pathologically driven to establish the worship of Baal as the one true and only faith in that land. In chapter 18, it gives us a little insight. Uh, verse on the screen, keep your, keep your finger in, in chapter 16. Just look at the verse on the screen for a moment. Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. That was her goal, to kill off every single person that spoke for and served the living God. And if it wasn't for Obadiah, who hid a hundred, fifty in each cave, she may well have succeeded. So Ahab marries then a rather nightmare of a woman. Your finger's still in chapter 16, verse 33. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So it's not really a great time, is it? So the scene set, verse 1, chapter 17, introduces us to Elijah. Elijah, we're told very little about him, except that he's a servant of God. And in this land that is now rife with Baal worship, and where God's prophets were being systematically killed, Elijah bursts into the throne room, if you like, of the king and says, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. It was brilliant. And so begins the confrontation of Elijah as he confronts all that's going on in his nation. This prophetic word immediately came true. The dew and the rain stopped. You can see at verse 7 that the rivers soon dried up. But the brilliance of Elijah's confrontation of this Baal worship is slightly under the radar unless you understand their belief in the gods, the god of Baal or Baal. As I'll use interchangeably because people uh, use different pronunciations for it. You see, Baal, they believed, was responsible for the rain and therefore responsible for the bountiful harvests. But with one word, Elijah stops the rain and therefore the harvest fails. Ahab's kingdom would be brought to its knees and the hundreds of prophets of Baal could do absolutely nothing about it. Now you would expect Ahab at this moment at this point, to give in, to realize that God alone is sovereign. You would expect Ahab to see, with just one word from Elijah, to see the futility of serving Baal or Baal and to beg Elijah to send rain. You would expect Ahab's heart to turn. But it doesn't, and he doesn't. Hearts consumed by evil, hearts under the influence of the demonic, can be very hard hearts indeed. In response, Abraham, uh, Abraham, Ahab is furious and Elijah, under God's command, flees into hiding. Uh, verse 2, Then the word of the Lord uh, came to Elijah. 
Leave there, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. And there God provides for him. Verse 4, you will drink from the brook and I've ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens did bring him bread, meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So the man of God has made a stand against the king who represents the evil of the day, and now he's hiding from that same king, and presumably also from his wife who wants him dead, probably more than Ahab himself does. And there in hiding, God provides for him. After a while, verse 7, the brook dries up, verse 8, so God comes to him again and says, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. You have to smile at this, don't you? You're not sure. You have to smile at it. Because Elijah has made a stand against the most powerful man in the land, albeit probably his wife, who is in charge. Ahab's in charge of the nation. His wife Jezebel is in charge of Ahab. Many husbands understand how that works. Uh, in, in fact, many wives understand how that works. It's a, uh, and, uh, 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 and no doubt, as a couple, they want Elijah dead. Jezebel leading the charge, as it were. So where does God choose to hide Elijah? Well, we're told in Zarephath of Sidon. Whose hometown is that? Have a lucky guess. Jezebel's hometown. It's brilliant. God hides Elijah right under the nose of Jezebel in her backyard, in her hometown among her own people. And there, while the country is being brought to its knees because of their rebellion against God and their worship of Baal, God provides for Elijah and for the widow and her son who are looking after him, where he's staying. The jars of flour and oil miraculously never run dry. And on one occasion, Elijah resuscitates her son miraculously from the dead, all right under Jezebel's nose. So, what's the Bible teaching us? Humanly, Ahab is in charge of the nation, Jezebel in charge of Ahab. But who's really in charge? Who's ultimately in control? Who's got it all in the palm of his hands as we read these verses? God is the safest place. His hand's the most secure, even when we're right under the devil's knows. King David knew that, didn't he, when he wrote the Psalms. He said in Psalm 23, the most famous of all the Psalms, you prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. That's how brilliant God is at protecting and providing. So Elijah's in hiding. Ahab and Jezebel are on the warpath. They're determined to stamp out the faith of Yahweh. They're killing all the prophets. They're raising up these shrines that worship the pagan gods of Baal. And this goes on for three whole years. Ahab is as resistant and as stubborn as he's ever been. Why do some people not see what's obvious to see? One word from Elijah... And the rain stops, and 800 prophets can do nothing about it. Who's got the power? So after three years, the beginning of chapter 18, this is the grace of God, 
God relents. God's like, this is hopeless. I'm only doing this because I'm longing for the people to come back to me. I'm not a vicious God that, that longs to see people face drought and suffering. I, I just try, I'm just longing to get their attention, to see their hearts turn. But, but they don't. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go back to Ahab. I, I'll send the rain. This is hopeless. So Elijah goes back to Ahab. Eventually catches up with Ahab in verse 16, a little bit of a jump, in 1 Kings 18. Hope you still got it open in front of you. 1 Kings 18, verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? The irony of it. Ahab, the troubler of Israel. Verse uh, 18 I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring all her right-hand men. You see, obviously stopping the rain has done nothing to turn Ahab's heart, so God relents. And Ahab, uh, and Ahab is about to be given another opportunity as Elijah plans this confrontation. So we all together, verse 21 of chapter 18. You ready? Here we go. Elijah went before the people and said... He's gathered all the prophets together. He's on his own on one side, all the prophets on the other side. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am only, uh, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. That God, he is God. Fairly straightforward, don't you think? How are you feeling now if you're Elijah? The people say, that sounds good to us. Elijah, if he's calling their bluff, has himself been called. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, you go first, you choose whichever one you want, and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of the Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response, no one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah, verse 27, for his own entertainment, began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or busy. Literally, he's relieving himself. He's in the loo. Shout a bit louder. He might come out eventually. Or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So far, so good. If you're Elijah, how are you feeling now? Who would be totally exuberant that nothing had happened? 
few of you, who will be totally beside themselves about what might not happen next. <laughs> and the rest of you are lying completely. Okay, here goes. Big gulp, man of God. Verse 30, uh, verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins after all that messing around. No wonder it was. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two shears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. If you want something to catch fire, it needs to be dry. Good. Okay, we all understand each other. Verse 34, do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. How are you feeling now, all you little Elijahs? You ready to go, rock and roll? It's a big moment. The whole of the faith of Yahweh is at stake in the northern kingdom, and it's all down to you, and you're pouring water on this altar that is not yet ablaze. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice... The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. That's the purpose, remember? Turning their hearts back again. It's all about hearts. We've seen this over and over again in these chapters. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Ah, you could have cheered, but you missed it completely, completely lost on you. The fire fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the saw, and also licked up the water in the trench just for good measure. The living God triumphs. Think of the contrast with me just for a minute. There's 450 of these prophets, plus the other 400 that worshipped Asherah, that were in allegiance with them too. 850 prophets one side, one man of God the other side. They had all day praying, dancing, shouting, screaming, cutting themselves, all their worshipping palaver. Elijah said a sentence, or was it two? Their altar was bone dry at the beginning of the day. Elijah's was drenched and dripping wet. Who's in control? Who's sovereign? Who works it all out? Who's got everything in his hands? Is that why this story is here? Or don't we know that already? Hasn't there been enough in this word so far for us to know that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God Yahweh is sovereign and Lord over all? Well, probably. So is there more? What's this got to do with us. Well, Elijah lived at a time just like our own. He lived at a time when the honour of the name of the Lord was at stake. He lived at a time when pagan religions were sweeping the land, where the forces of darkness were lining up against the church of the day, the prophets of God. Elijah made a stand. Can you see that his day is our day? Can you see that his time is also our time? And because the honour of God was at stake, 
Because evil was flourishing and because people were lost, Elijah made a stand. This is not right. As the temples to Baal were being built. This can't go on as the prophets of the Lord are being massacred. Something must be done. And he confronted the evil of his day. But Simon, his time might be our time and his day might be ours. But I'm not Elijah. I'm not even a prophet. What can I do? I I can't make a stand. Well, hang on. Just wind back with me to the very first verse. Uh, of chapter 17, verse 1, where we're introduced to Elijah. Uh, And I mentioned there that we're not told very much about him, but we are told a little bit. Uh, Just wind back with me to that verse. Elijah the Tishbite in Gilead. So we're told he has a home. He comes from somewhere. How many of you have a home and come from somewhere? Good, things are promising, don't you think? Looking up. There's only one other thing we're told about him, and that's that he serves the Lord. Hands up if you serve the Lord. Hands up if you serve the Lord and know where you come from. Okay, hands down. You are as qualified as Elijah to take a stand. That's all we know about him. He had a home, he knew where he came from, so he's not totally deranged. He knew where he came from, and he served the Lord. You see, when Ahab introduced Baal or Baal worship, and Jezebel set about eliminating all of God's prophets, Elijah just knew he couldn't sit by anymore. He had to do something. Something must be done. What is it that you see, that you look at, that you hear about, that makes you say, I just can't sit by. I have to do something. In that situation, something must be done. Perspective started. Why? Because a group of people said, we cannot just sit by. Well, people face the trauma of unplanned pregnancies. We cannot just sit by when people make uneducated decisions about their babies. We cannot just sit by when people struggle alone at the most vulnerable moments of their lives. We just can't sit by. Something must be done. We'll do it. CYM. We're losing a whole generation of young people, so something must be done. We're going to do something about that. What is it that makes you say, I I can't sit by anymore? Something's got to be done. I I must get involved. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to do something. Is it people with no food or shelter? Is it people with all the riches of this world that feel so lost and empty on the inside? Is it children who are uneducated, uncared for, even abused? Is it when families uh, raise their children and and there's no clean water for them? Is it elderly people living lonely and scared as they come to the end of their lives? Is it when the church is dysfunctional? Is it where the gospel has never been preached? Is it where the lost have no hope? What is it that makes you go, I just can't sit here anymore? Popeye, revealing my age. Popeye had a very famous quote. Anyone know? There's two people in this room. There are those that genuinely don't know and those that are embarrassed to say that they know. That's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. Brilliant English to raise a generation of children. And he did something about that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. What can't you stands no more? 
What can't you stand no more? Because that's what God is calling you to do something about. That's your holy discontent. And you are as qualified as Elijah to make a stand because our day is his day. Our time is his time. My top prayer for this church is that over the next few years, many of us will, out of our holy discontent, rise up to make a difference in some way. And little missional movements will break out all over our community because we find ourselves saying, I just can't sit here anymore. Confrontation of Elijah. So what are you confronting? What are you making a stand What can't you stand in Christ anymore? What happened next then is as surprising as it is predictable. As we enter chapter 19, Elijah had miraculously controlled the weather. Elijah had provided for a widow by raising his son. Elijah had taken on the king and the prophets of Baal and won with an amazing victory is totally thwarted by what happened next and finds himself unable to face the threats of a solitary woman. Verse, 19, verse 1 of chapter 19, Now Ahab, not surprisingly, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like that of one of them. You expect Elijah to be euphoric, don't you, following his victory on Mount Carmel. Come on, girl, bring it on. I'm the servant of the living God. I can take you all down. What does it say? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. He went alone, verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. From the mountaintop of victory, he's thrust into the valley of despair. Depleted and desperate, he thinks he sinks into a kind of depression. None of us are superheroes. We all need rest and recovery. We all need rhythm in our lives. We can all push ourselves to the nth degree, but then we must stop or we'll crash. We can all achieve great things for God, but still need to seek that rest and restoration. So we've moved from the confrontation of Elijah to the collapse of Elijah. Elijah has reached his limit. He's lost his vision. He's lost perspective. He's lost belief in God. He's lost belief in himself. We've all been there, haven't we? Jesus himself knew the importance of times of rest and times of work, a rhythm of activity and resting. Interestingly, the more pressured Jesus was with people pressing in on around him, the more determined he was to break away for time alone with his father and with his uh, disciples. Uh, I'll try and dig out a, an old sermon that I preached on a, on a day in the life of Jesus. He was trying to get away and the more pressured it got, the more he fought to get away. And eventually he got the time that he needed and he craved. Jesus says, you, you're not a superhero. Sometimes you, you've got to get away. You've got to take a break. You've got to step out or you will be stepped out if not stepped on. What he needed 
Ah, there as he lay with some sleep, with some sleep. He lay down and he fell asleep. If you're not sleeping well, it could be a sign of trouble, stress, exhaustion. It's funny, isn't it? We think, well, if I'm exhausted, I'm going to sleep really well. You try putting your overtired kid to bed. Food, if you're not eating well, could be in trouble. If you're eating too much, you could be in trouble. He looked around and there by his head was a a cake of uh, bread. I I love the way, don't you, God's so practical. He gives Elijah sleep. He gives Elijah food. Verse 8, he gives Elijah solace. Elijah got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. Many of you use walking as your place of solace. doesn't work for all of us. Many of you use walking as a place of solace. But look where he goes. He goes to Horeb, the mountain of God. What's that all about? This is the same mountain where Moses had met with God for 40 days and 40 nights and received the Ten Commandments. It's as if Elijah knows, I need physical refreshment, but I've got to get myself back into that place where I can connect with God again. Where can I go? Where's that place where I, can, I know I can meet with God? Where's that place in my life where the, the, the ceiling is thin, you know, where heaven seems near? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone still listening? Great. I've got to get there. And so he makes his way to Horeb, where he meets with God, and the verses that uh, Liz read to us earlier on is that meeting. God meets him in the still, small voice. It's a precious moment. Resting, remembering, reconnecting with God is an essential part of the rhythm of our lives. Some of you need just to get some more sleep. Some of you need to eat properly again. Some of you need some times of solace. You need the equivalent of that 40-day walk. Some of you don't spend more than 40 seconds on your own in the day and you wonder why you can't find him and hear him anymore. Some of you need to go as fast as you can to that place where you know you'll meet him and connect with him and be re-energized and restored by him. Others of us, perhaps, have spent too much time resting and feasting and we're kind of spiritually fat in the nicest sense. Or not so nice, perhaps. Filling ourselves up on sermons and podcasts and books and worship times and Christian CDs and prayer groups, all good. But if we never say like Elijah, in the name of Jesus, I just can't stand that and I'm going to get off my rather large spiritual behind and do something about it. You've got to wonder what it's all for, haven't you? Hello? Do you think by now that Elijah has got for himself a fair bit of life experience? Do you think he knows a thing or two about trusting God? A thing or two about taking a stand for light in a nation of darkness. A thing or two about listening to God and and hearing from him. Do you think Elijah knows a thing or two about patience, all those years in hiding? About disappointment, all those years when the, the king wouldn't turn his heart? Does Elijah know about exhaustion and disillusionment and despair? Does he know what it's like to feel useless and worthless and even long maybe that he should die? Yep, 
Here is a man packed to the brim with lessons he's learnt, with experiences he's negotiated. Here is a man whose walk with God is rich in understanding, wouldn't you say? So what does he do with all that God has given him? Well, he does what every disciple should do. He pours those lessons, he imparts that wisdom, he shares those experiences into another person that they might benefit from them, learn from them, grow through them, and carry on after him and go maybe further than him. So the end of chapter 19 introduces us finally to the coaching of Elijah as he calls Elisha to follow him. And so marks a relationship where Elijah would do life They'd journey together, they'd live together, work together, where Elijah would pour into Elisha every drop of teaching and wisdom and faith that Elisha would need to be a disciple like Elijah and even surpass Elijah in the impact for the kingdom of God. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Saphat. He was plowing with twelve oxen. And at the end of that verse, Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. I'm calling you, come, follow me, be a disciple. Elisha becomes the apprentice. And so began a relationship where they would journey together. And to cut a long story short, when Elijah came to the end of his life, there's this beautiful moment in Two Kings when Elijah is getting taken up into a chariot and Elisha cries out after Elijah. Two Kings 2 verse 12. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. My father, my father. Through their relationship, through the life that they'd lived, Elijah became his father. Elisha, Elijah, sorry, was a father in the faith to Elisha, who would go on to do the same as Elijah and arguably even more. We all need fathers and mothers in the faith. Paul talks about his role as a father to the churches. He says to the church in Corinth, he says, the trouble is you've got lots of guardians, but you haven't got enough fathers. I'm becoming a father to you. Imitate me. Why? Because he knew that if people are going to follow Jesus, they need to see that in the flesh. They need other people that are further ahead, that are, that are loving them, serving them, encouraging them, helping them, challenging them, pulling them along in discipleship. And he talked about how he did that with Timothy. He calls Timothy my, my son. Paul poured his life into Timothy so that when Paul could live no more on this earth, Timothy could carry on the mission. And if you read the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, you'll see that Timothy took on that model and poured his life into some more men and so it would go on. In the end, they were just doing what Jesus asked. At the end, there were 11 disciples and Jesus sent them into all the world to make disciples and the very last thing, apart from the promise to be with them, that Jesus says to those disciples is make sure, for heaven's sake, make sure that you teach the other disciples, those that are also following, to obey what? Everything that I've commanded you. You cannot teach, can you, what you haven't learnt? Teachers try that in school, don't they, all the time. It doesn't work, does it? You cannot teach what you haven't learnt. And so this is progression that we see with Elijah and Elisha that runs through the scriptures that Jesus modelled with the twelve disciples and and the church models uh, all together. Let's see what we can do here, just as a visual aid. Andy, would you come out and be Jesus just for a minute? Because you've got a beard and you're short, you're most like Jesus. 
So I'm half like Jesus. The Bible says I'm made in his image. Okay, stand there. Brilliant. Okay, someone, Liz. Liz is lovely and for our purposes, ordinary. Okay? This is more than ordinary, extraordinary Liz, like all of us are extraordinary, and Liz is following Jesus. Okay, and often this is where we leave it. We think about Liz who's following Jesus, and Liz follows Jesus because she comes to church and she reads the Bible and she prays and she does all the things that a good follower of Jesus should do, but... What Liz will often forget, if she's like the rest of us, what we often forget is that if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, I've also got to be teaching other disciples everything that I've learned. So there needs to be Carrie and John. Come here for a minute. They happen to be younger, but they don't need to be. This is about journeying in the faith. There's John and there's Carrie, and Liz needs to be looking and following Jesus, but she also needs to be looking back and pouring all that she's learned into John and into Carrie so that Carrie and John can also come and follow Jesus. True? And the truth is, actually, that Liz isn't just there before Jesus. There's someone uh, of much greater stature and many older years, Andrew, who's standing in between. <laughs> you see how I worked that in beautifully? Oh, I was longing for that moment for hours. No, 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 I was only kidding. I didn't know you'd sit so kindly for me. You see, actually, there's someone else that's pouring his life into Liz that Liz can look to and learn from. And so it goes on. You can sit down, everybody. Uh, who are your fathers and mothers in the faith? Can you name them? Do you know who they are? People that are feeding into you, that you're, you're learning from them, you're, you're doing life together. It's close, it's relational proximity that you need. Who are the people that you are feeding into? Who are your sons and daughters in the faith? Some of you know the answers to those questions and it's time to say thank you to some godly men and women that have led you and fed into you. To say thank you for the privilege of living and feeding into other people that God's given you. There may be others of you who go, I haven't got those people in my life. I, I, I don't know who they are. If we're going to be the kind of people that make that kind of stand that Elijah did, I'd like to be that, wouldn't you? If we're going to be those kinds of people, then we need these kinds of relationships. These kinds of relationships.